you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. If you're following in a chairback Bible, you can find that on page 977 uh, in the chairback Bible that's probably right there in front of you, or you might be able to follow along on your digital device, iPad, tablet, iPhone. Uh, As we approach God's Word this morning, let me begin by praying for us, particularly during this time. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to look into your word. We exalt you. We submit and surrender ourselves unto you. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. God, break down any defenses that we might put up. God, cause us to to hear, to listen intently. Lord, we yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit's working and prompting. And Lord, we confess that we need you to speak to us. Lord, may your anointing fall upon this place, upon our ears, our minds, upon my lips. And Lord, guard us from error. Teach us your truth. And O Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Spiritual Blessings in Christ. If you're visiting with us, we began a series last week where we started walking through the book of Ephesians, uh, or I should say the epistle of Ephesians. And as we began walking through Ephesians, we looked at the big picture, the macro picture, the themes that Paul develops as he walks through the book of Ephesians. And so I won't go back and give you all of the background that we looked at last week, but it's significant and I would encourage you to go and check out the website and listen to the message from last week so that you can catch up and see where we're picking up from today. The title of the sermon this morning is Spiritual Blessings in Christ. And we will be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, not chapters 1 through 6 today, but chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to break one of the, I guess, maybe top five, I don't know, I just made that up, but one of the rules, unwritten rules, uh, for preachers when they begin their sermons, and that is to tell an illustration about food. I know you guys will appreciate that, okay? Um, So I'll tell you an illustration about food. Note, really, I came across this recipe for pork chops, and Now, I love to grill pork chops. I love to grill anything, really, and to grill it with hickory because the hickory flavor really makes it taste wonderful. But I came across this recipe, and in the recipe, it has soy sauce. Now, soy sauce has a very salty flavor, and by itself, you you wouldn't want to to eat it or drink of it, really. Sesame oil is another thing that goes into this recipe, But, you know, sesame oil kind of has, if you've tasted it, it's good in in maybe in Asian cuisine, but it it kind of has a burnt flavor if you just taste it by itself. Brown sugar, well, that's really just delightfully sweet. It tastes so good. Garlic. Garlic is just potent. In fact, if you don't wear gloves when you're mincing garlic, the smell will stay on your hands for days. Anybody had that happen? Maybe I'm the only one. Paprika is another interesting spice, right? But it's kind of subtle. There's not, it's not very strong. 
All of these, all of these are, are just different various ingredients. But if you put all of these ingredients together, they make a wonderful medley of flavors that really serve as a great marinade for pork chops or for pork in general. So come see me after the service and I'll text you the recipe, okay? As we continue to discover in this series, Discovering the Riches of Unity in Christ, as we continue to discover the riches of unity in Christ, Paul begins chapter 1 by giving us the glorious ingredients of God's recipe for his people, the church. We see this in verse 22 where he talks, chapter 1 verse 22 where he talks about Christ as being the head of the church. In verse 23, he says that the church is actually the body of Christ living under the head of Christ. And so what's set before us in Ephesians 1 this morning is cause for praise of God's glorious grace. You see, we the church are recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is really getting at in chapter 1, especially verses 3 through 6 that we'll really center on this morning. However, I want you to know, as I approach this passage this morning, as we approach it, I approach it cautiously. You know, this is one reason why, why, why we at Crosspoint value ex- expositional preaching. As we preach through books of the Bible, we meet difficult passages, and we can't just skip over the difficult passages. And so I want to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 6, and then we'll continue. Would you follow along as I begin in verse 1? Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, you might be interested to know that in the Greek text, verses 3 through 14 are one entire sentence. It's a tremendous literary work. It's just one sentence from verse 3 through verse 14. And in it, Paul is giving us an accounting of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. But I want to return to, just briefly, to the reason that I approached this passage cautiously this morning. One, of course, is because it's a significant text. And this morning, as we read this text, I, I, I want us to allow Scripture to speak for itself. This is always a chief goal of mine when, when we come to Scripture, but I feel an unusual weight this morning to make this known. I'm not interested in a debate. I'm only interested in our church's edification and growth in the truth and knowledge of God's Word. Thirdly, I, I don't want to see any division among God's people. And so let us not forget the chief aim of Ephesians is not the division of the body of Christ, but the unity of the body of Christ. 
And so I remind us of what Paul also says in his epistle to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Last week, really beginning in verses 1 and 2, we looked at an overview of Ephesians we noted in chapter 1 that, that, that he opens our eyes to God's cosmic strategy of redemption for humanity. We saw that in verse 10 of chapter 1. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is, in Christ, what we've been singing about this morning, things in heaven and things on earth. But closely related to verse 10 in the cosmic plan of Christ's redemption is verse 22. That is, the headship of Christ. That God has put all things under Christ as head. Namely, the church. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. So we noted that the headship of Christ is the umbrella under which all matters of doctrine and all matters of practical living receive and and stand and get direction. So the headship of Christ means His authority and it means our submission under His authority. And so Paul's intent as we, as we read even through verse 14, from 1 through 14, it isn't that we would date, we would debate over antinomies in Scripture. An antinomy is a, a paradox where we see two seemingly irreconcilable truths that we can't make come together. It isn't that we would debate these paradoxes, our antinomies, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But it's that we would, we would stand back from the text of Scripture, we would look at it, and we would say, wow, here's what God is doing. We would say, wow, look at God's grace on display toward us. And this is exactly Paul's desire. That as we read this text, we would be blown away. Blown away by God's grace toward us. Paul wants the doctrine of election to draw our eyes heavenward. So that we offer up joyful praise to God. Because he displayed his glorious grace in Christ toward us when he included any of us in His cosmic plan of redemption. And so this morning, I want us to praise God for our spiritual blessings while growing in Christ-likeness and advancing God's kingdom on earth. I want us to praise God for every spiritual blessing while growing in Christ-likeness and advancing God's kingdom on earth. And I think that's the, the tone and the direction of Paul's text that we'll look at this morning, just in verses 3 through 6. So first, I want us to note a statement of blessing in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To bless God means to praise God. 
It's another word for where we get the word benediction. This is to to praise Him. Because God in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And since we are in Christ, we are members of Christ. And we share in His resurrection life. This is one of the themes that we see throughout the book of Ephesians. That we are in Him. Those who are in Christ, those who are saved by Christ, they are in Him. In other words, it's like we're located in the sphere of being in Christ. And because Christ is exalted in the heavenly realm, we who are in Christ are also have been blessed with the spiritual blessings of the heavenly realm. This speaks to the special relationship that we as God's people have with God. So the special relationship between God and man, between the two advents of Christ's first coming and his return. We live in this between time. And what Paul is saying, that there are special spiritual blessings that have been given to the the church, to God's people Those are both future blessings, but also blessings in the present, the here and now. And in verses 4 through 14, he unpacks what these blessings are. We'll look at 4 through 6 in a moment. In verse 7, we see that one of the blessings is the redemption that we have in Christ through his blood. We see that he's made known in wisdom to us the mystery of his will in verse 9. In verse 10, he has united all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. This is another spiritual blessing for the church. In him, we've obtained an inheritance. This is a spiritual blessing for God's people. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, another spiritual blessing for God's people. And so we see that these spiritual blessings are both future, but then they are also now. They promise the hope of eternal life with Christ in God's presence for eternity, but they also direct and guard and, 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 and lead us in our lives today. And so I want us to see this morning the first blessing, the first of the spiritual blessings that Paul talks about in this passage in verse 4. God's choosing is our unmerited blessing. God's choosing is our unmerited blessing. We see this in verse 4, the first part, which says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now we've said this before, last week, and even before that, that salvation is a work of God. Believers were chosen in Christ before time began. The unmerited blessing of our election is mediated through Christ. And Paul says, what a privilege. You see, for Paul, he's, he's stating this in such a way that there's, there's, there's no recourse here. He's just saying, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and he goes on to speak about why this is to issue forth or, or call forth from his people, praise we are to praise him as a result and so as we read verse 4 i think that there can be tend to be different implications that our minds immediately jump to but i want to challenge us this morning instead of seeing how these verses limit man's free will let us instead be humble hearers and humble observers of the rich theological and doctrinal truth of God's Word. The New International Version and the Holman Christian Standard Version of Scripture begin verse 4 with the word 
4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. The ESV, New American Standard, other translations use the two words, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But even so, both these words are saying, for or even as, they're suggesting that what follows in verses 4 through 14 are the ways that God blesses believers. And the first thing we should note about the way that God blesses believers, blesses the church, is that it comes through an expression of the Trinity. The point is that the spiritual blessings for believers that he, that he points us to in verse 3 are because of the divine plan of the Trinity. And so as we understand Christ's headship, this big picture umbrella of what God is doing in establishing the church and blessing the believers by bringing them into the church, we must see that this is God's divine and eternal plan. In verses 3 through 6, we see the eternal plan of salvation is the Father's plan of election. But in verses 7 through 12... We see the redemptive work of salvation is through the Son's dying. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And in verses 13 through 14, we see the sustained inheritance of salvation through the Holy Spirit's seal. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so we see all of this. It's not for anyone's boasting. Rather, it's for, get this, it's for the praise of God's glorious grace. I want you to see that because that is so important. That's, part, that's one of the keys in understanding this passage. God is doing this work, yes, but it is for the praise of His glory. Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace, right? Look at verse 12. To the praise of His glory. Look at verse 14 at the end. To the praise of His glory. All of this is for the praise of His glory. It calls you and me, believer, to read and, and understand what God is doing here in the working of our salvation and in return to Him with praise for unmerited blessing, that which we did not deserve but have been given. So to the language of verse 4, even as He chose us, God is the subject and believers here are the object The word chose, it's the verbal form for the word elect in English. And it is this word that that means election. God chose us in Him. Election is God's sovereign work of choosing some to believe. Salvation is God's doing. It's not man's. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you'll look at verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved, right, through faith. And this not of your what? Not of yourself, not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see salvation. It's a gracious act of God. It's based upon His will. 
That's highlighted in verse 5, that he predestined us for adoption as sons of Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, right? According to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. Verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As we approach this doctrine of election, Kent Hughes says in his commentary, the doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies a finite analysis. It's a doctrine which lets God be God. How true this statement is. Because of all of our intent, all of our attempts to reason or to rationalize about this doctrine, we can't really begin to comprehend all its depths and riches. It says he chose us in him, meaning that our salvation is in Christ alone, even as we sang this morning. Our redemption comes through Christ's sacrificial death. And so he's saying that Christ is the sphere of our election. He is the head. He's the representative of spiritual humanity. We see this in verse 10, right? The cosmic plan of redemption. We see this in verse 22, that he's given his head to the church and the church is his body. And so we see that even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, there's even an element here of time. Meaning, listen, this is amazing. That our salvation isn't an afterthought. It's a forethought. It's according to the preordained plan of God. Before the world was created. This is an inescapable truth of God's sovereign work in our salvation. God's plan to save you, to save me, not only predates your life, my life. It predates the very creation of the world. Hear it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. However, this doesn't relieve man of our responsibility in salvation, as some might suppose. And here's why we are recipients of the blessing of salvation. And as recipients of the blessing of salvation, get this church, we have a responsibility to believe upon Christ. We have a responsibility to walk by faith. We have a responsibility to profess with our mouths and confess within our hearts and believe upon him in our minds. And I think this is what verse 13 speaks to in chapter 1 when he says, when you heard the word of truth and believed upon him, you were sealed With the promised Holy Spirit. So, we're not robots as some claim. Scripture speaks equally of man's responsibility in believing upon Christ. So the question, church, is, believer, did God choose you before the foundation of the world? Yes, absolutely. Did you exercise your will when you believed in Christ? Yes. Absolutely. And though our finite minds can't comprehend this deep relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, church, listen, we must resist the urge to water down either of these truths. 
The point is that God is sovereign in our salvation and man has responsibility for his belief in or his rejection of Christ. Jesus speaks of both these truths in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he also says in John 5, 39 and 40 to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. But listen, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, there's this responsibility that's born in the lives of individuals and how they respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the challenges that some of us may be facing in here this morning is what are we going to do in response to the Lord Jesus Christ? How are we going to respond? Will we believe upon him, believer? Friend, this morning, will you believe upon Christ or will you reject Christ? Will you confess your sin before him or will you follow him? Or will you confess your sin before him rather and will you follow him or will you reject him and remain hardened in your heart? So when we speak of God's choosing and our unmerited blessing, we're speaking of God's undeserved and unprompted grace toward us in Christ. That though we didn't merit his attention and though we did nothing to earn his blessing of salvation, he has given us the magnificent blessing of salvation in Christ by which we have believed. So what's our response to be, church? Here's our response. To praise God for his grace toward us by living a life of praise and enjoying God's blessing of salvation. Our response to this wonderful truth should not be to to shrink back, but it should be to embrace it and to say, wow, here's what God is doing. Here is the grace of God that has come to me, and it should be to respond to him through hearts of praise. I think Isaac Watts, great hymn writer of the late 16th century, he's composed probably over 800 hymns that are still used in worship today. I think he captures the tone of praise that Paul is speaking of in verses 3 through 14 in his hymn, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Not awful in the sense of terrible, but awful in the sense of awe-filled reverence. Here are the lines that he writes. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. The church's response, pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. 
We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul unity sing thy redeeming grace. You see, the goal that Paul is aiming for here is that we would see this truth of God's working in our salvation and we would praise His glorious grace toward us. Secondly, this morning, we see that God's choosing is for our sanctification. We see this in the second part of verse 4. Sanctification is a, it's a big word, but here's what he means. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. And so while we certainly see the unmerited blessing and privilege in our election from God, we can't stop there. If we do, we miss an equally important aspect of our election that we have already touched on, and that's our responsibility before God. You see, the purpose of our election is our sanctification. We're saved to be holy. That's what he says there at the end of verse 4. That we, so even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, right? This is God's design in your salvation, beloved. This is what God desires to do in each of our lives as he saves us. The word holy is used as a title of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It is this word, hagios, in the Greek New Testament. That word, though, is also described, or also describes the people of God. If you look in verse 1, right? The letter is addressed to who? The what? The saints. Yes, thanks. The saints, that's the word for holy. It's the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Hagios. So these saints, these are holy people. And as the people of God, we're called out to be holy. And this is the point that he's making here. We are to be holy people. It means to be set apart unto God. And by implication, it means that we should be different, separate from the world. We're to be blameless as well, he says. Literally, it means without spot or blemish, without stain. And it's this idea of presenting this sacrifice before God that is perfect. So here's the call, believer, in our lives. It is that you and I would live lives that are set apart unto God and that we would be blameless before men through the conduct and through the practice of our lives. This is the work of sanctification. This is the work of growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the portrait of the believer's life and the portrait of the church. But here's the thing. We all know that our practice in life falls far short of the perfect standard of God's holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, You shall be holy because I am holy. This is God's desire in the life of his people. This is a spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. That, through, that though we, we fall far short in holiness, in Christ we've been made holy. 
So we're exhorted in this continuing Christian walk to be holy and to be blameless before God. So how do we respond, church? Here's the picture of what God's doing through our salvation. And here's our responsibility to submit our will to his and to learn to walk in Christ. So we're to grow in holiness. We are to grow in blamelessness. We have a responsibility to live as God's children in a way that's consistent with God's character. Right? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What's he say there? He says, I exhort you, therefore, brethren, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is to the church. This is to you and me. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is a call to holiness and sanctification in our lives. We see in chapter 4, verse Verses 20 through 24, this distinction that we didn't learn Christ in this way. In other words, he says, when you come to faith in Christ, when you've believed in the gospel, you put away the old self, the old nature, and you walk in the new nature. You put away the former manner of life that's corrupt and deceitful desires, and you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is what God's word is at work doing in our lives. Chapter 5 looks at the way that the gospel transforms our relationships, right? We see marriage. Go into chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We see the children and parent relationship. that that The gospel is displayed in the the home when children uh, learn to submit their own will in obedience to their parents. And this is how the fruit of the gospel begins showing in the lives of our children. This is when we know the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. Or in the, the work in, he says here, the slave-master relationship, we would understand in, in the working relationship today, employee-employer. So the gospel informs how we live. This is part of sanctification, church. This is what it means that we would grow in holiness and blamelessness. God's word at work in our lives, shaping us and forming us by the hope of the gospel. Chapter 6 teaches us how to stand firm, right? Read chapter 6, verses uh, 9 or 10 through 20 there. It shows us how to stand firm, resisting the schemes of the devil, right? Strapping on the armor of God, equipping our lives to do battle, spiritual warfare. Talk about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Here is the Holy Spirit power, the very power of Christ's resurrection at work in the life of the believer, It's amazing. What a blessing. This is God's sanctifying work in your life, believer. Why all of this? Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Look at what he says. Until we all attain what? To the unity of of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ growing up into the head that is Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But verse 15, rather, here's what we do. Here's the outworking. Here's the, the fleshing out of this sanctification. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together. Sanctification, 
Believer, your holiness, your blamelessness has a role to play in the larger body of Christ. And it is a spiritual blessing that God has called us even before the foundation of the world. And he's lavished his grace upon us that we would believe upon Christ and we would experience salvation in Christ alone. So if someone asks you, when were you saved? You can say, I was saved before the foundation of the world. When did you first believe upon the gospel of Christ? You can say, when I was 7, or or, or when I was 15, or when I was 25, or when I was 60, or yesterday, or today. You You see how that works. And then when someone says, what is God doing in your life? You can say, he's making me holy. He's leading me in blamelessness. He is sanctifying me. He is taking my old, deceitful, fleshly desires and He's teaching me to throw them out. And He's teaching me to pursue Christ headlong with everything I've got. The final spiritual blessing I want us to see quickly this morning is that adoption gives us a new condition and a new position in Christ. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 1. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And this is according to the purpose of His will. In fact, we should read that last phrase of verse 4. You notice the period in your English translation there? In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The fact that He says, in love, He predestined us to adoption, it shows us the purpose of God's election. That is, that it's relational, and it's an expression of His nature. In love, this is what He has done. He has predestined us to adoption. D.A. Carson, in the difficult doctrine of love of God, says, or asks, when He says He loves, does not God mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of bad breath, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive, but because it's my nature to love. You see, God in love looks upon us, the unlovely, and He calls us to Himself. He graciously calls us to Himself. And the illustration or the metaphor of adoption, helps us somewhat to wrap our minds around this truth of God's love. Because just as an orphan is completely dependent on a loving father or a loving parent to adopt him or her, so we've received a gracious adoption by a loving father. So in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. The word for predestined means to mark out beforehand or to design something beforehand. In this case, it's our adoption as sons, as children. As His children, we've been marked out as sons and daughters of God. You see, adoption is a tangible illustration of God's saving work in our lives. He bestowed His love on us. Think about it. When a parent adopts a child, his or her condition changes, right? They become part of a family. 
And though not biologically born of that family, they've been given a new name, a new nature, if you will, as much as is humanly possible. They've been given a new hope of inheritance. They've been now positionally placed as a son or daughter in a new family. A Reader's Digest article recorded the story of a young mother who wrote, I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of our first child. One afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it was surprising that our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are fair. She said, well, your daddy has black hair. The woman replied, but mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. With an embarrassed smile, she said the most wonderful uh, words I've ever heard. She said, I always forget. You see, in God's economy, our adoption is complete. And we're eternally God's sons and daughters. Yet God does something in our adoption that no human parent could possibly do. He gives us of His own nature. Flip real quick to chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and see this. The nature we had before adopted in Christ is this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, right? Following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And listen, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here's what he did. He raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that he could pour out the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ. God gives us of his own nature. He takes the sin nature that we have, and He gives us of the heavenly nature. He grants that we would become sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, His divine Son. And so we're predestined for this before the foundation of the world. Listen, in love, in accordance with the pleasure of His will. Church, this ought to be a melody in our hearts. That God, in His grace, has adopted us as sons and daughters. And our response should be as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We ought to praise God for his glorious grace in our lives. Look at verse 6. This is according to the purpose of his will. Listen to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know who the beloved is? Christ, his son. Church, we must grow in this new nature and share God's love with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with fellow students. This is exactly, get, get this, this is exactly what Paul is doing when he goes to the church in Ephesus to preach the gospel before there was ever a church in Ephesus. He is going to tell them of this magnificent, gracious love that the Father has bestowed upon them, even before the foundation of the world. I want to challenge us this morning that our own praise 
of God would be impacted by this wonderful, deep truth. I pray that our own mission for living for Christ would be impacted by this wonderful and deep truth. And so church, let us praise God for our spiritual blessings of election and adoption while we grow in Christ's likeness and advance God's kingdom. Are you able to praise God today for His salvation in your life? I pray that you are. If you're not and you want to know more about surrendering your life to this God of all creation, this sovereign Savior, I want to invite you to come forward and speak with me about what it means to confess your sin before Jesus, to acknowledge Him as Lord and to follow Him with your life. Are you growing in holiness and blamelessness in Christ, believer? Is this what God's doing in your life? When someone says, what's God doing in your life? Can you say, well, He's sanctifying me. He's growing me in holiness. He's growing me in blamelessness. Are you rejoicing over your adoption and the new nature you've been given as a son our daughter of God. Let us this morning not fail to give God praise for what He's doing in our life. Would you pray with me and you respond as the Lord leads you this morning? If you need prayer, I'll be down front and while the, while the band is playing, you can come forward and I would love the opportunity to pray for you or even talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We confess our own inability to really comprehend the depth of how you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And yet at the same time, we're called on to believe upon you, to surrender our lives to you, to follow you. And so God, we ask that you would teach us to rejoice in in your sovereign work. God, we worship you because you are God. You are Lord of all creation. Lord Jesus, you are the head given to the church, and we surrender and submit our very lives to your authority. And We ask, Lord, that you would be exalted in our midst this morning. Receive the praise of your people even now, Father. Be glorified in our midst. God, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?